This is the Anatomy of a Scream Pod Squad Network. Hello and welcome to Bodies of Horror, the podcast where we take our favorite horror films from the classic, the camp, to the cringe, and we put them on the examination table and we look at them through the lens of disability. We'll be looking at characters that represent the disability experience, and we'll also be looking at films that have themes that resonate for those of us with disabilities. My name is Nicole, I'm your host, and I'm so thrilled to have you here with me. And what is on the examination table for this episode? We are going to be looking at 2016's Hush, directed by Mike Flanagan, and 2018's A Quiet Place, directed by John Krasinski. That's right, two films that have central characters that are deaf. I thought that looking at these films side by side would be a uh, a cool way to kind of talk about uh, the varied experiences uh, within disability, especially when we're talking about the same uh, disability, uh, because both of these films approach deafness in very different ways. And I also thought it would be a good opportunity to talk about the importance of representation in terms of actors, uh, disabled actors playing these roles, uh, because in one of these films, uh, the deaf character is in fact played by an actor that is deaf. So, all of that said, let's get into it. And let's start with Hush, and let's start with that Wikipedia plot breakdown. Maddie Young is a deaf woman and whore writer who lost her abilities to hear and speak after about a bacterial meningitis at age 13, only to lose both permanently after a botched corrective surgery. Hoping to advance her career as an author, she lives an isolated life in the woods with her cat. Her friend Sarah visits her one evening to return a copy of her book. While discussing her writing, Maddie explains how she visualizes her stories and considers numerous potential endings before deciding on one. Later that night, a masked killer with a crossbow attacks Sarah, and chases her to Maddie's house. A bloodied Sarah bangs on the door, shouting for help. Her cries go unheard because Maddie cannot hear her, and the man stabs Sarah to death. The man quickly realizes Maddie is deaf and decides to make her another victim. He sneaks into her house, steals her phone, takes photos of her, and sends them to her. As Maddie realizes she is being stalked, the man cuts the power and sabotages her car to prevent escape. Maddie writes, Won't tell, didn't see face, boyfriend coming home on the glass panel door with her lipstick. But the man responds by taking off his mask and revealing his face. Maddie attempts to distract the man with her car alarm long enough to grab Sarah's phone from her body, but fails. Mocking her, the man pockets the phone as well as one of Sarah's earrings. While attempting to escape through the second-story window, Maddie is shot in the leg by the man with a crossbow bolt. 
but she manages to knock him off the roof and steal the weapon. She staggers back into the house, removing the bolt from her leg before trying to reload the crossbow. John, Sarah's boyfriend, arrives at Maddie's house looking for Sarah. The man confronts John, posing as a police officer responding to a call. He delivers the story of how he was rendered unconscious by an intruder, but John grows suspicious and eventually attempts to attack him from behind with a rock. Just as he is about to strike, Maddie bangs on the window, distracting him and allowing the man to stab him in the neck. As John bleeds to death, he puts the man in a chokehold to buy Maddie enough time to escape. However, Maddie realizes that any attempt to escape or hide will result in her being caught or bleeding to death. Her only chance for survival is to kill the man. Outside, the man catches and threatens Maddie's cat with a knife before he is struck in the shoulder with a bolt. While retreating into the house, she drops the last bolt outside the door. Before she can grab it, the man slams the sliding door shut on her wrist, crushing her hand beneath his boot. Continuing their game of cat and mouse, he allows Maddie to pull her mangled hand inside and closes and locks the door. When he threatens to enter the house, Maddie writes, Do it, cow Do it coward, on the door with her own blood. As the man begins bashing the door in with a tire iron, Maddie rushes to her computer, typing up a description of the man and a message to her family. She concludes by writing that she died fighting before shutting her laptop, arming herself with a knife, and locking herself in the bathroom. Failing to break through the door, the man opts to crash through the bathroom skylight, unbeknownst to Maddie. She is alerted to, the, to his presence when he inadvertently breathes against her neck. She narrowly avoids the attack and stabs him in the knee. Maddie stumbles into the kitchen, where she disorients the man uh, with insecticide and her visual smoke alarm, but he regains the upper hand by strangling her. On the verge of death, Maddie grabs a corkscrew and plunges it into the side of his neck, finally killing him. Maddie retrieves her cell phone from the man's body and dials 911 before stumbling outside, sitting on the porch steps. Maddie's cat rubs up against her and she lovingly strokes the cat. Bathed in the blue lights as the police approaches her, Maddie closes her eyes, pets her cat, and smiles. Let's talk about the character of Maddie and how her deafness features into the film. Now, I have to note straight out of the gate that Maddie is played by Kate Siegel, who is hearing, and she created this character and co-wrote the script with Mike Flanagan, who directed and is also hearing. Mentioned in other episodes that more times than not, uh, and I underscore that meaning basically always, a character with a disability uh, is going to be portrayed by someone that does not have a disability. This is all important to note here because when we're talking about representation, it's not just representation in front of the camera, but representation behind. It's representation in the creation of these stories and how these stories are told. There was a consultant that was brought on to uh, help teach 
Kate, American Sign Language, uh, ASL, and uh, also vetted the script. I know that one of the contributions that was noted um, was the uh, change in the character uh, so that Maddie acquired uh, deafness later in life. So um, the switch from, I think, being born uh, deaf to uh, becoming deaf after uh, having bacterial meningitis was something that I think the consultant thought would make the character a little bit more accessible for Kate to play. All of that to say that there was a bit of controversy when uh, this came out within the disability uh, and deaf communities. Most of the controversy was around the casting itself, of course, and the fact that there was never an intent to cast a deaf or hard of hearing actor in the role. Now, both Mike and Kate have spoke to this and have said that the reasoning behind this was because they didn't want disability to be the main uh, element of the character. They wanted the focus to be on Maddie's isolation. And while I can make a leap to kind of see their point, then why have the character be deaf at all? Why not have a story where the character is just a writer who chooses to self-isolate to finish a book? Sure, we've seen stories like that before, but why not go down that road? Do something inventive there instead of bringing in a disability element that you really don't want to have integrated in a meaningful way. Another uh, aspect that uh, particularly individuals in the deaf community have picked up on in regards to this film is the use of sign language. Uh, as I mentioned before, there was a consultant that was brought on to teach Kate uh, American Sign Language, but it's been uh, discussed that in the film, it switches um, between American Sign Language and what's called Pigeon Signed English, which is uh, a different form of sign language. So there's that aspect where, you know, if it's, if you have someone that's cast that lives with that language, that that's their communication, um, you're not going to have those variances and those inconsistencies. They've also hit on the fact that the lip reading, um, the facial expressions, uh, are kind of used in inconsistent ways as well. I want to transition to talk a little bit, uh, about things that stood out to me in a more general way, uh, in the film, particularly, um, in more recent viewings of the film. And I want to start with the opening scene. The film begins with Maddie in the kitchen cooking dinner and the sounds associated with that, the chopping of onions, you know, uh, frying in a pan, all of that stuff is amplified. I think when I initially saw this, um, 
I was like, all right, I get it. It's a little gimmicky, um, but effective in a way. But uh, in recent viewings, it circles back to me when she's having this conversation with her neighbor, Sarah, when she comes by. Um, the fire alarm goes off and it's a visual and audible um fire alarm so uh it has a flashing light and the sound is a little bit louder than a regular fire alarm or smoke detector because it has to be at a certain volume so that it would produce vibrations to wake uh, maddie if it were to go off while she was asleep so they're talking um, Manny's been cooking. She leaves everything on the stove and in the oven. The fire alarm goes off. And they go inside to take care of everything. And as uh, Maddie is turning off the alarm, you know, she apologizes to Sarah saying, you know, I'm sorry, this is so loud. You know, it has to be this loud so that it creates these vibrations, you know, explains the whole thing. The thing that stood out to me is that we really have established that we are not entering into this world, into the world of the film, with Maddie's perspective. We are uh, interacting in this environment as hearing. So I, I it's just something that kind of stuck out to me. Um, I don't know if it was the most recent viewing, but certainly I think when I've visited it within the last um, year or so, um, it's really kind of been something that jumped. An aspect that stood out to me is also how little sign language is in the film. Uh, it's really concentrated in that opening scene with Sarah when she comes over and there's uh, a brief uh, FaceTime call that Maddie has with her sister where she's using sign language. Um, I found that uh, interesting, but also connected to what we were talking about before with, you know, the story intentionally uh, being crafted in a way to not make... Uh, Maddie's disability uh, the focal point although it is in a way um, I also noticed and I think I noticed this the first time watching this but connected to the uh, sign language when she's on the uh, FaceTime call with her sister um, she has the nickname of Squish um, but the subtitles, the captions, read squash. And that made me chuckle quite a bit. Um, because in some weird way, it's very telling about some of the communication barriers that even uh, the, the accessibility components that we have in place... Um, can still have. So uh, I just 
Yeah, that was something that made me chuckle, and I, I do think I noticed that the first time, because she's obviously referring to Maddie as Squish, but uh, I don't know. One thing that stood out to me in particular on this uh, more recent viewing for me is, uh, and this is, I, I think, a really strong uh, point of the film, is that they steer away from uh, having Maddie be a damsel in distress, kind of going down that trope, particularly, um, you know, as a female character with a disability. Uh, there was a, a article that came out, um, I want to say recently, I think it was just last month when, when I stumbled upon it, that talked a little bit about Hush and uh, the damsel in distress trope and brought in some uh, kind of comparisons to uh, Wait Until Dark film with Audrey Hepburn and um, I just I think I had that in mind watching it and I enjoyed how uh, capable they really allowed Maddie to be in the film I will say though kind of in slight contrast to that um, I see this in a lot of films that center around a character with a disability and in particular horror films and that is the framing of the character's disability as a point of trauma and having these characters brutalized in ways that connect to their disability. So, you know, I think of uh, um, scenes where you will have a character with a disability and they are pushed out of their wheelchair or fall out of their wheelchair and they have to like crawl on the floor to get away from their assailant or someone that's visually impaired or blind, um, you know, is uh, trying to get away and is trapped and is kind of feeling around and maybe injures themselves. Things like that. Um, there's this, I think, method of connecting these aspects of brutalization to the disability. And I think it's also connected usually with these characters framing their disability as a point of trauma. Um, and often having to use these experiences as a way to overcome an aspect of their disability. And this film doesn't really go hard in that direction. Now, one way that this film, though, does perhaps frame uh, Maddie's disability as um, I wouldn't say a point of trauma, but as a hindrance or a shortcoming or a type of fatal flaw is, uh, we see Sarah murdered and Sarah is, uh, thrown up against Maddie's door. Um, and it, we obviously hear it, it's loud, um, but... Maddie is completely unaware. And it's 
an interesting moment in the film because it's almost making Maddie culpable um, for Sarah's murder. If she had been able to hear uh, Sarah being attacked, could she have intervened? And perhaps they could have fought off uh, the intruder together. Um, you know, it's one of those things that is put there, but it's, you know, because um, Maddie is never aware of that happening, it's not something that ever comes back into play. She obviously sees Sarah's body, um, but doesn't, you know, she has no way to know that Sarah had been alive and um, there had been perhaps an opportunity to uh, save her or try to help. Now, I know it may seem that I've come out pretty hard against Hush, um, that I don't like the film, but that's not true. I actually really like Hush quite a bit. I think it's a really great um, kind of home invasion horror. Um, and I might be a little biased because that happens to be one of my favorite little subgenres, but I really do enjoy it. I just think that obviously because the uh, intent of not kind of integrating disability into the story more um, was there, it just falls a bit short for me in terms of really um, making that an interesting dynamic to the film. And, you know, obviously there are some examples where maybe having that more developed or um, incorporated more mindfully casting someone um, with a disability that's someone that's deaf hard of hearing would have I think maybe elevated it a bit more but I do enjoy it so um, I just want to make sure that that's that that's stated um, but now I want to switch over and talk about A Quiet Place. So let's get into the plot synopsis of A Quiet Place. Throughout the year 2020, most of Earth's human and animal populations have been annihilated by sightless extraterrestrial creatures. The creatures, which attack anything that makes noise, have hypersensitive hearing and are covered in armor which is invulnerable to bullets and explosives. The Abbott family, wife Evelyn, husband Lee, congenitally deaf, daughter Reagan, and sons Marcus and Beau silently scavenge for supplies in a deserted town. Going barefoot while out in the open, the family communicates in American Sign Language. Four-year-old Beau is drawn to a battery-powered space shuttle toy but Lee takes it away due to the noise it would make. Reagan returns the toy to Bo, who is also who also takes the batteries that his father has removed from it. Bo activates the toy when the family is walking home while crossing a bridge, giving away his location to a nearby creature that kills him before Lee can save him. Over a year later, Reagan struggles with guilt over her brother's death. Evelyn enters the final stages of pregnancy 
and Lee fruitlessly tries to make radio contact with the outside world. Lee attempts to upgrade Reagan's cochlear implant with uh, scavenged miniature amplifiers to restore her hearing, but the devices are ineffective. Later, Lee takes Marcus to a nearby river with a large waterfall to teach him how to fish, while Reagan abandons her mother to visit Bo's memorial. Lee explains to Marcus that they are safe from the creatures in the presence of louder and constant sounds, as the sounds mask over their voices and do not attract the creatures. Marcus then reveals that Regan blames herself for Bo's death and needs her father to tell her he still loves her. Alone at the house, Evelyn goes into labor. While making her way to their, to their basement, she accidentally steps on an exposed nail with her right foot. In pain, Evelyn accidentally drops a glass picture frame and alerts a nearby creature. Evelyn flips a switch that changes the exterior house lights to red as a danger signal to the others and struggles to remain silent during her contractions. Arriving at the farm and seeing the lights, Lee instructs Marcus to set off fireworks as a diversion. Arriving at the house, Lee finds Evelyn hiding in the bathroom with her newborn son and, along with Evelyn, makes his way to their improvised, soundproofed basement. Lee leaves to find the other children, promising Evelyn he will protect them. Evelyn then falls asleep, but soon wakes to discover that the barn basement is flooded with water from a broken pipe that a creature has found its, and that a creature has found its way inside the basement hideaway. Reagan, hurrying back to the farm, takes refuge atop a grain silo with Marcus, lighting a fire to alert their father of their whereabouts. However, they run out of lighter fluid and the fire dies before they can attract Lee's attention. A hatch door then suddenly gives way and Marcus falls into the silo. The sound of the door falling, falling distracts uh, the creature that was stalking Evelyn and it targets Marcus and Reagan. Reagan, who has jumped in after Marcus, sinks into the corn and nearly suffocates, but, Mar but Marcus saves her. Reagan's cochlear implant reacts to the proximity of the creature by, emit by emitting a high-frequency sound that drives it away. The children proceed to escape from the silo and reunite with their father. The creature returns, attacking and wounding Lee, while Marcus and Reagan hide in a pickup truck. After seeing their father, after seeing his father wounded, Marcus shouts impulsively, uh, attracting the creature to the truck. Lee signs to Reagan that he loves her and always has, before yelling to draw the creature away from his children. The creature, hearing Lee's voice, attacks and kills him. Reagan and Marcus roll the truck down a hill to escape and reunite with Evelyn and the baby at the farmhouse. The four retreat to the house's basement. When the creature returns, Reagan, who realizes that the sound made by the implant distresses the creature, switches the device back on and places it on a nearby microphone, amplifying the feedback. Painfully disoriented, the creature exposes its flesh beneath its armored head, allowing Evelyn to fatally shoot it with a shotgun. The family views a CCTV monitor showing two creatures attracted by the noise of the shotgun blast approaching the house. With their newly acquired knowledge of the creature's weakness, the members of the family arm themselves and prepare to fight back. 
Now, before we talk about the character of Reagan and how her disability is woven into the movie, we obviously have to talk about the casting. John Krasinski, who directed this film, said that it was always his intent from the moment that he signed on uh, as director to cast uh, an actor that is deaf in the role. And it's great to see that that was something that, from the jump, was important to him. And, of course, this leads to uh, Millie Simmons being cast. And she is deaf. And uh, I think only had been in the movie Wonderfalls before this. So, um, you know, this is... This is a pretty big opportunity for a young actor. So let's talk about the character of Reagan and how her disability is uh, woven into the story and the world of this film. So we established that Reagan is uh, an individual that is deaf kind of in our first introductory shot of her. Uh, the family is in the store scavenging for some supplies and medication, and we get a side profile shot of Reagan, and we see the cochlear implant. So we establish from the jump um, that she is someone that is deaf. But what I love about this film is that, by and large, that's a non-factor in her experience as an individual with a disability is normalized. Yes, um, she is an individual that is deaf, that has a cochlear implant, but her communication methods and all that are something that is commonplace. So we see this with the use of sign language. The family isn't just using sign language to talk to her, to communicate with her. They are using it to communicate w with each other because that's kind of uh, the point. You know, it's a mainly silent form of communication and they have to be quiet. So um, it's, uh, it's kind of a small thing, but it's a really big thing kind of in overall theme. Another, I think, way that we see her experience normalized is the use of sound in the movie, uh, especially up until the climax uh, with the creatures, because the film is by and large almost silent um, with only uh, bits of sound here and there. Now, in contrast to what we talked about with Hush, where, you know, there's a lot of loud and jarring sounds the use of silence here helps us feel connected to Reagan um, and Reagan's kind of experience in this world. Um, so I think that that's something that's really um, kind of outstanding. Because so much of Reagan's experience is normalized in this world, she, for the most part, isn't treated any differently from her brother. Um, now, there is one scene that stands out a little bit 
perhaps in contrast to this, but I'm not exactly for sure if this is an aspect of um, disability or uh, something else. And that is the scene where uh, Lee uh, takes uh, Marcus fishing. And when they're getting ready to go, Marcus is telling his mom and dad both that he doesn't want to go. He's frightened. And so Reagan says, I want to go. I want to learn to fish. I, I want to go. And Lee tells her, no, you need to stay here with your mom. Marcus is going to go. And this is also um, kind of hit on as well um, just a few moments prior. Um, Lee comes in while Evelyn is giving some school instruction to Marcus to let him know, hey, it's time to go uh, fishing. And he expresses to his mom, I don't want to go. It's too scary. And Evelyn, you know, explains to him, this is something that's important for you to learn so that you can take care of yourself and you can help take care of us. Um, so it, I don't want to say that she's not allowed to go because it's somehow disability related. I don't really look at it that way. Um, it's more, I think, perhaps falling into some of those gender roles of, you know, the men have to be the providers and the protectors, um, of the family. So I, I read it more along those lines. Um, and I think also the film, uh, uses that scene to again, create this divide between Reagan and her dad. Uh, she, is experiencing guilt because she thinks she uh, led to the death of her younger brother, Bo, at the very beginning uh, by giving him the the toy that made the sounds. And she feels that perhaps her dad in particular blames her. Um, and... So I, I think that the scene is really more playing into some of those ideas as opposed to being a comment on disability. Now, another interesting thing in this, uh, just talking about Bo's death, um, kind of made me think of this as well, uh, where you could frame the story that Reagan's disability somehow led to Bo's death, her not being able to hear, um, somehow contributed to this. That's not the case in the story whatsoever. Um, the batteries had been taken out, so there was no indication that there would be any noise. Um, and giving her brother the toy, is in no way connected. So while she's experiencing this guilt, um, you know, it's that 
it's it's more kind of connected to her as a family member. We're getting to know this character um, and kind of her role within the family. It's not related to anything um, that would separate her from the family. So I I like the little nuances that it's creating in those dynamics. Now, one aspect where Reagan's disability is kind of a, a different feature for her um, in relation to kind of these family dynamics is in her relationship to her father and her father's um, trying to refurbish and upgrade her cochlear implant so she can hear. The first couple of times that I watched this movie... I had kind of a read of this as kind of a take on, you know, disability is something to be cured. And so this was his way to eliminate her, her deafness, um, because it was a, a detriment, even though we've talked about, particularly in this world, how it really isn't. Now, there's obviously factors that, yes, it could um, put her in more peril. You know, she's trying to operate silently, and if you're not able to kind of gauge the sounds that you're making, that can be difficult. If you're not able to hear sounds around you to um, kind of get yourself to safety, that can be um, that can be at your detriment. So, um, there's that that aspect which is there, but it's not, I think, so hardlined into the story that it becomes a distraction. But kind of back to the um, cochlear implant kind of subplot. So we have Lee trying to uh, upgrade these cochlear implants so she can hear. And... At one point, she just flat out refuses, tells him to stop. She doesn't want it um, as he's trying to give her one that he's been working on. And she later has a moment by herself when she's in her room where she puts it on and snaps by her ear to see if she can hear anything. She can't and she cries. Now, taking all of this in, at first I thought, well, yeah, this is going down that trope of disability is something to be cured or rectified in some way. But if we're looking at it from the world um, that they're inhabiting, you know, her ability to hear is part of her safety. And so, you know, maybe that's kind of where this, uh, this is coming from. I, I don't know. It's, it's kind of a messy uh, subplot, it's not really hammered out, um, all that well, and doesn't really come into play again until the very, very end. Um, so, I don't know. It's one of, I think, the weaker elements of the film, but it's really one of the only examples that we see Reagan othered, um, from the folks in her family due to her disability. So I mentioned 
the cochlear implants and the ending. So, um, you know, flipping this idea of disability, uh, being, uh, a point of trauma or being, uh, a hindrance in the world, the way that it actually plays out in the end is that it isn't. And in fact, her cochlear implants save the day. Um, because due to the, uh, feedback, they're able to expose the creature's weaknesses and thus kill them. I thought this was kind of a, a cool little, uh, spin on this idea. And, uh, you know, I love that it wasn't about, you know, her saving the day once she's able to accept and use the cochlear implants or finally gets a cochlear implant that works. It's no, these defective cochlear implants are still going to save the day and I don't have to be wearing them, uh, to do so. Uh, I don't know. There was just something about it that I thought was kind of, uh, a cool element. And I would also say that, you know, back to the kind of messy subplot with her father retooling these cochlear implants and the, um, kind of their relationship and the gender aspects, um, that go with the siblings, um, and how he may be treating them a little bit differently. Um, I do think that the ending again kind of flips that because it's the women that are saving the day. It's Evelyn, uh, with the shotgun and it's Reagan with the implants. And I, it, it's cool to see these ideas kind of come to that point. Um, so, and, and I'm excited to see how they further some of this in the sequels. Um, and I am especially excited to see how some of the, uh, prequel elements are executed. You know, what we learn about the family, how they were, uh, living, uh, as the creatures were invading, you know, in the, in the before times, I guess. So, uh, I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing how that may further some of these ideas, you know, and I th think that to tie it, to put kind of a bow on this discussion, I think tying it back to representation, because that was obviously a huge sticking point with Hush. In an example like A Quiet Place, you have a, not only a deaf actor playing a prominent role, which I think is great. Not only do you have a young deaf actor playing a prominent role in a film that went on to make lots of money, obviously um, really well received um, and is getting a sequel that they'll also be in. Um, you know, I think all of that is great, but I think it's also great to see that the filmmaker, John Krasinski was thoughtful from the jump of it's important to cast, uh, 
the cast is correctly. And I, I think that that really is uh, to the benefit of the film. Now, drawing direct comparisons between the character of Maddie and Hush and our character Reagan here is challenging. And not just from the representation angle. These are one of the reasons that I, I wanted to talk about this, these two films is that these are characters that are experiencing the same disability in very different contexts, in very different ways. As I've said before, disability isn't a monolith. And these are two characters that have very... Uh, different experiences, both in terms of how they have uh, come into their disability, as well as how their disability is um, kind of part of their identity and their world. And, you know, certainly um, the representation element is perhaps part of that because it was something that wasn't as focused on with Hush, but I think it's, you know, it's important to point out that one of the ways that these films can work together is to show those varied experiences. And with that said, I think that's a good place to uh, wrap things up. Thank you, as always, for listening uh, I truly, truly appreciate it more than words can say. And, of course, this podcast is a very proud member of the Anatomy of a Scream Network. If you haven't uh, checked out their shows, uh, please, please do. There's a ton of great content over there. I've mentioned a couple of them in previous episodes. Uh, I love Let the Bodies Hit the Dance Floor, Development Hell, uh just really, really great stuff. So be sure to check those out. And while you're doing that, if you haven't already, please subscribe um, and drop a rating, drop a review. Um, it not only is great in providing feedback, but it helps other people find this podcast as well. So if you like this podcast, um, do those things, but also recommend it to a friend. That's always chill. And if you want to reach out to me, that's wonderful. Uh, I can be found on Twitter at Nicole in DC, and that is Nicole with an H uh, in DC on Twitter. Or you can drop me an email at bodiesofhorror at gmail.com. Thanks again for listening, and until next time. Scream Pod Squad.